Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Welcome to a new episode of Another World is Potable. I'm here with Professor Nicole Fleetwood, who um, I would say is really doing some of the most interesting and important works around the relationship between politics, creativity, and art. Um, Her new book is Marking Time, and it looks specifically at the use of art and creating art by inmates as a form of humanization, but also as a political act and a basis for solidarity. So, uh, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to participate in your podcast. So this is something I ask almost all the guests, um, and you can answer in any way you want, but you you do such very interesting work that really combines, you know, I would say the most sophisticated kind of critical theory with the really, you know, very, very sophisticated understanding of art and creativity. So how did this come? Like, what is your broader intellectual background and what personally inspired you to kind of do the type of work that you do? Oh, great question. And I don't know if I have one answer to that. Um, I, you know, I, I like to, follow questions that interest me. And um, and I think a lot of it has to do with um, the relationship between the visual world, our ways of just kind of seeing and, and, uh, and kind of knowledge formation connected to the visuality and our psychic and social lives. And, you know, and for me, I think, and I don't mean that abstractly, as a black woman in the US, I know that how I live my life and how people interact with me is so much about the visuality of race and gender, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think I've thought about those structures in, in, in various ways in all my books. Um, My first book, Troubling Vision, my second book on racial icons, and then my current book on marking time, art in the age of mass incarceration really all deal with some configuration around um, anti-Black systems and, and, and the history of, of racial subjugation and ca- captivity, especially in the U.S., and the subjectivity of racialized and gendered people, especially around uh, cultural production. Mm-hmm. So I'm not as curious about what white people think and how they see people of color, especially black people, but the kind of self-making and production that emerges among populations that are marginalized in in Mm. some capacity. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And and, I mean, throughout your work, and I I think all your books are are brilliant, I mean, this kind of deconstruction and dismantling of the white gaze in in such an innovative way, have you felt personally that it's been oftentimes difficult to uh, explore that? Or do you feel that there has been a kind of openness? Because I think your work really stands out as, I I would say, uh, quite unique in a lot of ways in this respect. Thank you. I mean, I think that there's a I think, especially in the last decade, um, there has been, you know, a a growing body body of of scholarship in the U.S., I can say, around, you know, like people like, uh, of course, Idea Hartman, Fred Moten, Christina Sharp, Michael Gillespie. I could just name a whole host of people who are doing work, some that somehow deals with um, kind of sensory experience of visuality. Um, and uh, systems of knowledge production and in in black subjectivity. Um, mm-hmm. I think what what's important to me when I do my work um, is also um, I like I'm I'm not crazy about academic writing, and so I do I think I 
really try to find a way of um, writing in a way that where I feel where I feel embodied in the work itself. Hmm. Hmm. I can definitely say that uh, when I, as a scholar, read your work, uh, there's always part of me that says, "Oh, I wish I wrote as clearly as you." Um, and and I think it is, uh, you know, it's it is something important, as you've said, in terms of how do you kind of go beyond the strictures of academic writing, not only as a form, but also as a type of language and genre that can depoliticize often quite radical ideas. So uh, yeah, I, I think your work stands out in terms of just how accessible it is without sacrificing any criticality. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate your kindness and generosity. <laughs> Well, I mean, you you you've written the book, so I mean, I you know, thank you. <laughs> um, um, one of the aspects that I think kind of works across your uh, books, and then we can talk more specifically about your most recent book, is what I would kind of look at as art as a type of critical praxis, if you will. And so, as I said, I mean, I, I think I would be interested, and you've touched on this a little bit about how this notion of artistic expression, the varied ways in which it can manifest itself, kind of guide your own critical thinking and your own political praxis. And what do you think this reveals about the different possibilities of creativity as a potentially crucial aspect of what I think you are, which is a radical public intellectual? Well, um, such great questions. I mean, like, what do we have without creativity? I think creativity is so foundational to human life. Mm. We don't exist without creativity. Mm. And I am, I am, I am perpetually fascinated by what people create and why they create under whatever condition. Mm. You know, I mean, from a kid at you know two year old tinkering to someone creating you know an architectural gym I, I i mean that's one of my that's one of the things that wake me up in the morning is is creativity um mm. and the hows and whys and what's of it um and i think that i've been able to combine that enduring interest you know with my own personal ethical political commitments um to creating a more viable world collectively with others, mm. you know? A world where people can- Absolutely. A world where, literally where people can breathe, right? I mean, we we have heard more than on one occasion, we've, we've been we've been horrified witnesses to people saying they can't breathe as the state ends their life. Yeah. And Black I, I, I think that, mm. It's such a strong and important point um, and about how creativity isn't something to take for granted. And it's really in many ways the lifeblood of, you know, what makes us vibrant. And, you know, like you said, what I think gets a lot of us up in the morning um, and thinking about, you know, how it survives in even, you know, the most quote unquote oppressed or desperate of conditions. Um, that's, Though also something that I, I really feel is quite interesting is that, you know, when we think about creativity, there's also a ways in which it connects to, I think, a kind of politics of 21st century abolitionism. So I thought before getting into that a little bit, I know you worked on it and thought about some of these, issues, but for some of our listeners, how do you think your work reflects in the kind of broader movement of this kind of 21st century abolitionist politics, particularly as it relates to things like policing and prisons? Yeah, great question. And I, and I want to say that my thinking on these issues have been deeply, deeply influenced by the work and activism for a half century of Angela Davis, who is just who's like, I just I deeply admire her on so many levels. And also um, incredible activists and scholars like Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, Gilmore, um, Joy Jay, 
Um, and, and, and contemporary scholars who I share work with and, and consider like friends and allies like Dylan Rodriguez and Ruby Tapia and, and several other people who are doing really important work on abolition. Um, and, um, and, and also great activists like Miriam Makaba, who's been doing work um, first in Chicago, now out of New York, but with a, an incredible nationwide reach on the ground as an activist. And I do think that creativity and imagination is absolutely at the center of the both the the praxis and the 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 vision of, of abolition, and that is um, building a world that is about collective care, community, viability. And that is not framed uh, and structured through punitive governance and extractive capitalism. That is not about the disposability of certain populations, but it is about notions of collective care and systems that are supporting collective care, community, um, and, and viability. Mm. And mm. it's also being willing to experiment and try locally and nationally ways of coming together and belonging that we have not seen implemented or that we have seen implemented in some ways. Like for example, people write about some of the kind of mutual aid societies and groups forming um, after, after um, this uh, during the reconstruction era uh, and WB Du Bois writes really beautifully about these things. And, and so there's like, you know, if you think about it like that, that th there are some blueprints for ways of belonging and coming together. That's not about exploitation and extractive capitalism. Right. And so learning from those practices of the past, but also being will like, I think we're in a totally different moment in terms of like, global forces, globalization, technology, um, access to knowledge, um, income and, and wealth disparities, health disparities, right? Like it's, we're just in a really interesting and, and also deeply painful and isolating time. Um, and it really requires radical thinking and radical imagination um, to, to get of our get ourselves out of this like the kind of death machine that we're in because we are it's like the the way that we're living on the planet is not only destroying you know it's destroying human life but it's destroying all kinds of other systems that keep the keep the planet viable alive healthy you know hmm. and the planet will outlive us. the planet will outlive us so it's not, I mean, the planet, it, you know, we say we're destroying the earth. The earth is going to outlive us. The earth will destroy us before we destroy earth. You know, we can, <laughs> we can toxify it and do enough that we create conditions where we can no longer live. Mm -hmm. But the earth is going to outlive humans for sure. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, and, and I think it's... It's about what conditions are we making for either our survival or exactly. extinction, and what you know, and, and other and other and, species are 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 you know. I I think one of the aspects that I've gotten a lot from your work in general, but then also from uh, your new book, um, but on this topic, as someone who I would say um, is not particularly artistic, um, when I do think about abolitionist politics. And when I do think about it both as a, as a scholar and also as an activist, I oftentimes think about, you know, these kinds of very strong imaginations of reimagining what social relations could be. Mm -hmm. um, or when I think about creativity, I often think we're gonna, you know, make a world where people can be truly creative. Um, but what I think comes out in your work and what comes out really strongly for me in, in, in this new work is that, no, I mean, Creativity, everyday forms of artistic expression is fundamental to the creation of this world. Absolutely. It's not just about, you know, and, and also that we tend to have this sometimes liberal idea of thinking about art and politics at this kind of very high end of, you know, 
from Nina Simone to Bob Dylan to, you know, Tribe Quad Quest, you know, these, these kind of very tough figures. But actually, we need to get down to the fact that the revolution is made in everyday people's creative expressions. Right. And, you know, for us to... Go Sorry, it, there's a little bit of a delay. I don't want to cut you off. No, no, I, I was just saying that for me, reading your latest book, I mean, it really struck home to me that, you know, it's not just we're going to create another world for create for greater creativity and fulfillment um, through dismantling and abolitioning uh, and abolishing these oppressive structures, but actually the very their very abolishment demands an everyday culture of celebrating the creativity of people on the ground. Absolutely, and if you if you pay careful attention to the protests, you will see that they're all about creativity, from like the chants to the signs to the way that people to the practices that you know from die-ins and the like that people are doing. These are all, they're imagining on the ground, right? And they're you know and, and there's mm. kind of multi-sensory engagement too with with you know with forms of making. But one of you you said something about abolition and like as a, and re, reconfiguring our, our social relations, and I think I think what I don't maybe harder or more challenging for people in in their day to day lives is I I don't think it's just reconfiguring social relations, but I think it's really reconfiguring intimate and family relations too, because I think especially in the U.S. that so much of like our racial apartheid system is a, is a setup around protecting ideas of white nuclear heteronormative families and their property. Like all this obsession around property. And it, you know, I mean, it's like, it's such a, it's such a uh, just devastatingly narcissistic uh way of thinking about, the way we think about family is I think absolutely antithetical to like um, the the vibrancy of community and socia sociality on a broad scale. It's such a kind of exclusive. It's a, it really is about keeping the door locked and protecting one's kids from from the outside stranger, mm -hmm. right? You know, I mean, that's the whole idea of public safety and like quote the the notion of the black criminal is all of, it's really about, and you know, people say it's about pro protecting white femininity, but I think it really is a very heteronormative capitalistic idea of, of family. That's about white property and reproduction of, of, of those categories. Hmm. And I think it's, it's very much around also precisely what you said, like this kind of maintaining of, you know, my little piece of security or privilege, right? And that I don't have to actually engage with the rest of the world because I have to maintain my little oasis of security. And I think this, like you said, breeds this type of extremely destructive form of kind of intimate capitalist relations mm -hmm. that are very anti-ethical to something more communal and liberating. Um, and I, I think that's a really nice place maybe to actually, uh, if, if you're open to it, start talking about your book. So for people who do listen to this podcast, you know, um, I, don't, I don't think I've done this before, but I, I'm going to do it now. Um, if you read one book this year, uh, I would say, please buy this book and please read it. Um, because Marking Time, I think, is probably for me, over the last two or three years, I would say the book that I felt most spoke to the issues that are really happening right now in many ways. And also it's somehow simultaneously so timely and, and you know, I think timeless. So if you do, you. I, I, I really appreciate your to please read this book. Well, thank you very much. So, I thought, I mean, there's, this book is so rich, it's so broad. Um, I thought maybe I could give you a bit of space just, you know, to actually introduce, you know, what it is because it's doing so many different things. And I think you mentioned to me previously that, you know, it was, you know, a decade in the making. So what, you know, what is marking time? Wow. Um, so that's a great question. So I started the book 
um, after I finished my first book, Troubling Vision, and um, and and I really started it um, as uh, a set of practices uh, around um, coping with um, the incarceration of of my loved ones and family members. And so it really started with me actually looking at photographs um, taken what during visits with them in prison and also these kind of um, at these studio portraits that they um, posed for while they were in prison to, and, and sent to loved ones. So I, I really started it by looking at my family's relationship with incarceration and the, and the visual record that we had documenting that. Um, and I began sharing that publicly um, and often really with without a clear goal but knowing that the that i that for me the intervention was to like make public because i was really also recognizing the massive shame that prisons produce especially for black and brown communities that are just walking around Hmm. with the shame of the the stigma stigma of of criminality and and imprisonment um so it was also practices of like um, ridding my family of that shame. Um, and, and what happened as I started sharing more and more around it, I, it's just that people would come up and share their own experiences around being incarcerated, having loved ones in prison and, and also sharing art and the kind their visual records around it. And so it really grew in this way. It grew in such an organic way, the project around, around sharing the work, talking to people about it, and this kind of reciprocity of people and a generosity of people sharing their archives with me. And over the course of many years, um, it led to me, you know, curating um, exhibitions. And, you know, I, I wasn't trained as a curator, but it, the project kind of demanded that of me and also archiving work that hadn't been seen before, lots of public programming. Um, um, and, you know, and it, it's resulted in this a, a fairly large book with seven chapters. Um, I didn't go into writing the book knowing what the chapters were going to be about. I had some ideas that were forming through um, interviews that I was doing with currently and formerly incarcerated people. And I, those interviews to me are really at the core of the book. I, I, I conducted like over 70 interviews. And the, the interviews really are what gave me like the theoretical framework for the book um, and helped me develop the method for approaching the book. Um, and so mm-hmm. I um, developed the idea of carceral aesthetics as the production of art under the conditions of unfreedom. And then I look at the kind mm-hmm. of what some of the conditions under which incarcerated people make art. And I, and I talk about kind of penal space both being the built environment of the prisons, but also the social relations structured through carcerality. I talk about penal time, which for me was one of the like, both most abstract and most devastating. It's like living one's life as punishment, right? Like that, the, the way that our modern, modern system of punishment is, is measured through time. So we, we mm-hmm. sentence people and then they're, labeled inmate, convict, offender, all of these pejorative state designations. And then they, and they're supposed to live their lives, like wake up every day in that relationship to the state that that's this as this, you know, as their primary relationship at the state punishing them. And that's what prisons are is you wake up every day and experience the state punishing you. In every single way, mm-hmm. from wh- when you go to the bathroom, what you eat, who you're in a cell with, your access to medical care, your communication with your loved ones, everything, right? It's like um, that kind of ruling. And then I also talk about penal matter, which is pr- probably the most concretely important related to visual art. And that's the incredible way that incarcerated people experiment with the material constraints of prison to in, in the production to produce art. Um, and so over the course of these chapters, I developed these concepts and, and then I look at various genres and practices. So I look at photography and the kind of role of historical role of photography of, of 
being really foundational to creating criminal indexes in modern um, modern you know modern uh, prison systems, um, as well as the use of photography by social documentary photography furs and the like. Um, I, as you mentioned earlier, I have an entire chapter on portraiture, which I had no idea, like the mm -hmm. kind of the robust practices of portraiture in prison and how portraiture, portrait serves so many purposes from like uh, as a form of currency to a way of memorializing other incarcerated people to practices of self-making. Lots of incarcerated artists um, have active self-portrait practices. Um, one chapter that I had no idea I was going to be writing until I actually had finished the book. And I was like on my second version of revisions. I was like, so it was like towards the very end um, was the chapter on solitary confinement. And what I did is I had already written the book. Like I said, I was going through my, the second round of revisions. When I, as I was reading, I just noticed that so many artists were talking about their time in solitary confinement. And solitary confinement, especially in the U.S., I can't speak of the U.K., but the U.S., it's overused. It shouldn't be used ever, but I mean, it's more commonly used than people can imagine. It There's no transparency. It's, it's hard to even uh, figure out how many people are in solitary confinement at any given day. And um, Solitary Watch, which is an advocacy group, and they have a great website, as well as the Prison Watch program of the American Friends Service Committee were great resources for me in terms of working on that chapter. Um, but it's also connected, so the chapter on solitary confinement is also connected to the history of radical uh, activists and radical imprisoned um, activists, especially Black Panther members, Black Liberation Army members, because solitary confinement in the U.S., it was, was in decline until the mid 20th century, but after the 60s, uh, the kind of radical protests of the 60s and early 70s, you see a real surge, a real rise in the use and also the creation of, of, of whole units and then prisons, supermax prisons um, that were meant to really incapacitate and isolate people based on ideas that the uh, prison systems thought would, were threatening um, you know, and of course, this was also in response to Attica uprisings and San Quentin and Angola and all these places where incarcerated and prison intellectuals were organizing and fighting for, mm. you know, demanding rights, you know, and recognition. So that chapter came, like I said, towards the very end of my revision. And it wasn't and I, and I didn't have to do much new writing. I actually just put together all the pieces where I talked about solitary confinement into this one chapter and kind of structured it around um, some narrative threads. Mm. No, and, and I, I thought that was a very powerful chapter and, and that's very interesting, you know, in a way that the whole book for me spoke about just how comprehensive this kind of exploration of creativity in the midst or environments of unfreedom is. And the ways in which it's more than just a kind of story of inspiration, but that it, it represents an entire means for forming solidarity and community and even new modes of social freedom that previously had been undiscovered. Um, and for that, I, I really would like almost, you know, to go back to the very beginning of the book, um, which was, I, I was really struck by it doesn't start in prison, it starts actually in communities. And I hope it's all right because you shared in the book, you, you share you know, your personal experiences and it's very uh, intimate about just the realization growing up in the midst of this rise of massive, massive, uh, mass incarceration that all of a sudden people were disappearing and where were they going? And that process then of, in a sense, giving you know a way of entire populations and communities being made disposable and invisible and how this almost seems you know when i was reading the book at, at the very end and like a full circle that this is a means if i can of giving visibility back to these populations that are made to seem invisible <laughs> excuse me yes i mean 
it definitely for me um, and, and people have been, you know, writing about carceral geographies and, and then also abolition geographies as a way of countering carceral geographies, especially Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, um, who's been largely influential in, in this area. And so I was thinking about the intimacy of carceral geographies, like growing up in an area and seeing one's entire community transformed by punitive, especially the rise of punitive policing in a time when I grew up in the in the 80s and um, early 90s. Um, and along with that, you know, just transformations in the criminal legal system that lowered the age at which, you know, young children were going to adult prisons and many states lowering it to 14. I mean, I, I hope I hope generations from now we look back and uh, that people look back and think what kind of cruel craziness was happening in the system, right? In this, in this, in this society mm -hmm. that people are putting 14, you know, um, but just absolutely horrendous, torturous condi conditions under which people were often being sentenced for life and the kind of categories, like even like the super predator category, which, you know, has been widely discussed, um, used also to, um, to, incapacitate people and to, and, and, and to, you know, sentence them to living under hellish conditions of punitive captivity. Hmm. You know, children, 16 year olds given double life sentences and, and the like, and I'm, and that sounds spectacular and salacious, but these are, you know, very commonly common sentences that were given across the country in the, especially in the nineties to young black teenagers. Um, and, and so I was thinking about that from a very personal level, you know, because often when we think about the, that kind of abstraction, let me, let me, I, and I know I'm jumping around, but a little bit, but what I would say is I just, if you, the sentencing project, um, a recent report from the sentencing project was looking at the use of, of life sentences, for example, in the U S which I think the U S is unusual, atypical in how harsh and punitive its sentences are that in 2020 and um uh, this is i don't have the exact numbers in, in front of me but something like over 200,000 people in the US are sentenced to life or natural life meaning most likely they're going to die in prison that number in 2020 of people sentenced to life is more than the entire prison population of the US in 1970 The number of people serving wow. life in 2020 is more than the entire prison population of 1970. I think we need to take pause there and just take that in for a moment because that is such a powerful point. Like, that's an incredible statistic. I mean, I, I'd heard something similar, but I don't think it ever hit home. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I mean, wow. Yeah, I, I think that deserves a moment of pause. I apologize because that's that's quite important to take in. So if you think about that, then that is transforming local communities. If people are being removed for their the rest of their life, right? So to think about the absence, mm -hmm. the void, the, the violent erasure of those bodies, those people, those subjects from communities, from families, from all kinds of social and religious, ideological, cultural structures and systems and practices. Mm -hmm. And it is it is important as well to you know and not to interject interject myself here, but as someone who who has studied authoritarianism, you know, uh, for a long time, reading that part and as you kind of describe, I mean, it really does highlight how this isn't just about mass incarceration. This is about an authoritarian culture of whose bodies count, who's disposable and who's not. Um, and the ways in which this isn't just affecting individuals being sentenced, but entire communities and populations and families. And I think that comes across ex extremely powerfully in the book. Thank you. And it, and it affects the economic viability of communities, of families, of, you know, like it's it the the it, basically the, the removal and these are people usually young able-bodied people so you're thinking about the kind of 
the ways that in mass incarceration or mass imprisonment or carcerality continues to impoverish the most vulnerable, the targeted communities also. Because you're extracting body, you're extracting mm -hmm. labor and, and economic yes. viability and forcing those bodies to work for pittance on behalf of the state as part of their punishment. Mm -hmm. I, I, one, one of the facts that I, uh, when I was reading the book that um, I had to look up uh, again because I'd heard this before, but it, it was so it's what it's in Angola for picking cotton for it. It's two cents an hour, um, which is, you know, I mean, that is modern day slavery. Modern day slavery. Absolutely. Right. And picking by hand when we know that so, there's other ways, you know, there, there's much more advanced <laughs> ways. But making people go back to this, these kind of anachronistic systems that connect their bodies and their captivity to the history of chattel slavery. Mm, absolutely. Like literally, it's not even metaphorical. I mean, it's a, the literal. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, so in a, in a sense, one of the concepts that I thought was really interesting in your book, and if it's all right, if, I, if we could explore it a bit here, is what you call fraught imaginaries. Um, so I thought maybe you could introduce that a bit because I was really taken by that. And I think I mentioned that it's already influencing some of the ways I'm, which, you know, I, I'm already thinking theoretically about things and some of the work I'm doing. So what, what is fraught imaginaries to you? And, and why did you introduce that concept and think oh, it was thanks. so important? Um, so fraught imaginaries is, is chapter five of the book. And it's, and it was actually, I say the solitary confinement chapter, which is six, number six, was the was the one I did last, and actually was I wrote it pretty quickly because I was bringing different chapter parts of chapters together. But Fried Imaginaries was actually I find the hardest chapter to write, and took me the longest mm -hmm. to kind of get to to get crystal clear about what kind of intervention I wanted to make with that chapter, and it's a chapter looking at collaboration across the carceral spectrum. So it's thinking of just about when artists and activists who are non, not incarcerated um, collaborate with imprisoned artists or imprisoned populations. And um, the really kind of think about the kind of economic, aesthetic, institutional investments that, that underlie these collaborations and how um, often the outcomes and the gains are are quite disparate for you know a professional artist who are you know doing a six week gig in prison and and a group of incarcerated people who might be sentenced to life and often i find that these organiza yes. organizations or initiatives that do this work um presented you know in this kind of liberal framework of helping or educating or, uh, you know, somehow uh, bringing cultural enrichment to like deprived populations, you know, it's very, uh, some, almost like a kind of, um, you know, um, a savior complex or a kind of goody two shoes. And, um, and the whole part point of that chapter is not to say that people shouldn't engage in these collaborations or initiatives, but that the kind of fraught relations and the imaginary, imaginary horizons and investments of differently situated populations have to be like at the core of what happens, right? And so to me, part of that is like very upfront acknowledging the power imbalances between imprisoned people and a te mobile teaching artists. Um, and uh, also thinking about the different investments and where the money's coming from, because often it's uh, these artists or organizations or they're vendors of the carceral state. So they're, you know, they're, their ultimate client is, client is the prison, not the imprisoned people, right? So really just thinking more yes. complexly about that and also looking at initiatives that get created by incarcerated people where they're looking to um, collaborate from from sites of captivity with other people and other ways of, of, of thinking about how collaboration could take place and, and also acknowledging the importance of people imagining across the spectrum 
um, a, a world that's not based in mm. punitive governance and caging. Mm. That uh, that was the, before getting to I think some of the radical potentialities that fraud imaginary can have as a, a an important concept. Um, two things really struck me. Um, the first was, and maybe this is just a comment, was that in the portraiture chapter, um, you, you you kind of point out the fact that a lot of these inmates actually, they do these portraits uh, for other inmates oftentimes, but sometimes they're used as a means for funding the kind of more empowering aspects and programs in the prison. So th there's this weird kind of, kind of interesting, uh, and, and I use the word interesting uh, hesitantly, but where they're almost using their art to actually cover over the fact that the state is not investing in them as humans while they're captives. Um, so I thought that was very interesting as well. And, and looking at like what this kind of reveals about liberal frameworks of empowerment. So I, I could see a lot of, and I, and I don't want to be too stereotypical, but people, you know, looking at that who are maybe think who are outside the prison saying oh it's so great that they're selling these to charities and it's going to help them and you're thinking yes but that's also reinforcing a particular type of punitive governance and it's not really abolishing the very system and it's often an exploitation of the labor of imprisoned people um, Yes, and the kind of lack of control that they have over their um, their the what they create, whether it be art or a pair of boxer shorts. So, so yeah, it has, and, and, and you know, and I without I don't um, dismiss um, art therapy or rehabilitative arts models, but I I you know early on state that this is not a project about rehabilitative arts or. Um, art of therapy in prison, which mm -hmm. is the most common ways that uh, imprisoned arts get get discussed. Um, because I, I said, you know, those type of frameworks mm -hmm. are focused on the individual without thinking, without a critique of the, the, the need to transform systems that relegate people to such deprivation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that also was uh, very fascinating to me was the fact that, I mean, and, and this is a little bit outside of your book, but what I really got me thinking from reading your book was the ways in which some of these very same punitive logics are now being used in quote unquote non-punitive um, settings such as corporations. So there's this way now in which you have a co-optation of kind of art or creativity as it means to make it easier to cope with the exploitations of work intensification um, and precarity in you know, everyday economic organizations now. And I think they're really reading your work. I, I think there is a very strong parallel between the ways in which we, in a, in a sense, um, you know, in our carceral institutions have these punitive logics and dynamics and complexities of them and the, how they actually aren't just isolated to them, but they actually kind of seep out in, in quite dangerous and disciplining ways across all of society. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that, that, you know, some of the, some of the most urgent work happening right now in carcerality. And, and by the way, I want to say, um, Mick, Miko Siegel is a professor at Indiana and she wrote this great book called Violence Work. And it's looking at, um, it's called violence work state power and the limits of police and it's you know it, uh, thinking about just how we started our conversation around policing and stuff and that you know and that the that what's at the core of policing is not um quote public safety or uh violence as an anomaly but the core policing is violence work is the state has the state has actually created them mm -hmm. officers as of agents of, of violence um, and that's the power of policing too, mm -hmm. right? And so, and this, and she's writing from an abolitionist framework. And so I say that to say, you know, her, this argument in violence work, and, I, and I'm hoping my book and other work on, on carceral state, 
shows the kind of the inadequacy of reform models that you can't, hmm. you know, Angela Davis writes about this beautifully that from the very beginning of prisons, uh, agents and officials were working to reform it, to tinker, to make it, you know, but like re reform, the idea of reform is embedded in prisons. And reform does not hmm. transform the very, the foundational nature of what prisons do. And prisons are the evisceration hmm. of sociality, intimacy, relationality for those who are imprisoned. And, and, and that is a system that I, mm, that I would I would say, and I think many others would say, is not, is, is not a system we, that it's an untenable way of, of living in proximity, in relation, in love, and belonging with others on this planet. Mm, mm, mm. 100%, absolutely. Um, I thought, I, I wanted to pick up on some of the ways that I think this also speaks to our kind of current political moment and how it can inform, you know, kind of radical praxis. Um, because I, I, like I said, I, I think this book is, is, is timelessness and something very timely in what it can say to us right now. Um, and I like that the, the concept of penal matters and about the kind of reappropriation, reimagining concretely of everyday materials for artistic and creative and, and quite emancipatory often purposes. And I think about that when I was reading about how that ethos could translate you know, more broadly in terms of the ways in which we can think about the reappropriation of everyday materials in our lives um, as a means for reimagining how they could be used for social freedom. So yeah. I mean, I, I thought I yeah. want to give you a bit of space to think about it because it's such a great concept. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I, I mean, I, I say in the introduction, introduction, I said that there's a pedagogy here. Like for, for me, the book is about lessons that incarcerated people have taught each other. There's so much peer mentoring, art collectives um, that's happening in prison. And, and whether you're interested in art or not, I think there is that, that th these practices offer incredible tools for organizing, organizing across distance, right? Like we're all, we've spent the past few months, mm -hmm. especially in like, you know, Western Europe and the US and parts of North America. And, you know, those of us who are, who are resource rich and privileged enough to quarantine in our own homes, we've been figuring out how do we create connection and um, stay in contact with people while we're physically isolated. Well, guess what? In prison, people have been practicing that for centuries. How do we mm. be an active participant in our family, in our communities, in our religious societies, and whatever, you know, is, is important to us? In prison, people have to work through those, you know, and, and I'm not saying always successfully, but these are issues that these are like, absolutely at the core of being removed from from everything you know and familiar with you and held in a in a cell against your will you're having to work through this all the time and so you know i didn't when i finished the book and it was set to come out i had no idea that we were being you know we, we it would be released during a pandemic but i i do think that so much of the lessons of the book, and these are not lessons that I created. These are lessons that I heard and I learned from listening to incarcerated people are very much appropriate to what we're dealing with now, especially strategies of organizing and sur surviving against authoritarian forces. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think, I think that's, that's really key because what we've seen with the pandemic um, in, in certain sense is that on the one hand, you have the ways in which the lack of investment in kind of public health infrastructures in terms of public health and just in welfare is gonna create situations of almost voluntary authoritarianism because it's not safe to actually leave your home. And then I think what you're seeing now in, in the United States um, over the last week, um, with the kind of protest uh, for justice for George Floyd is that 
this is an explicitly authoritarian system. <laughs> and so that these lessons, uh, you know, are not just important in terms of something uh, looking at, oh, isn't this interesting, but as, you know, fundamental, I think, to the preservation of our very survival and thriving as a society. Because every day, I think we're recognizing the kind of inscriptive and authoritarian character. For our, right. And also, I mean, at least here in New York, so much of the, um, I shouldn't just say New York, here in the United States, so much of the, even the management around the coronavirus crisis have been carso practices around finding generally poor people who are not social distancing in public spaces or and many of them can't because they're frontline workers and they have to be out and about. And also who's bought, who, what's a frontline worker? Who's out? Um, what, who has access to protective equipment? And most significantly, the hot spots, like we often think about prisons as somewhere, somewhere separate from society as governed by another logic. Prisons are society. What's happening here is happening in prison. And in the U.S., yeah. the epicenter of the, the virus is in prisons. And across the board, local, state, and national officials have done almost nothing to address the fact that people are, are, are basically being sentenced to death. They're, they're in spaces, they're in institutions mm -hmm. that are dirt, that are filthy, that are overcrowded, where social distancing is impossible, where regular hand washing is impossible, where there's no protective equipment. And the, the, the broad response has been to ignore the outcries. And the outcries are coming from incarcerated people, from activists, from lawyers. People are fighting, fighting, fighting to get people out of prison, especially a lot of the formerly incarcerated mm -hmm. people I know are on the front lines of this activism. And for the most part, you see states, um, because most of the people in U.S. prisons are in state prisons. And across the board, you see state governors, elected officials, really just ignoring these de demands and cries because they don't want to, one, they don't want to be accountable. Um, and two, they want to just uphold the carceral mm -hmm. logic that people did something bad and therefore they should be in prison. And a well, lot of prisons, was, a lot of prisons I, aren't bothering ahead, I testing. Apologize. I mean, I just recently wrote about like in Ohio, which was one of the first states to uh, report um, on uh, exposure in prisons, and they test. And the the governor there then said all in, all imprisoned people in the state were to be tested. After two two prisons tested with over eighty percent people positive they stopped testing because guess what? They don't want to be accountable. So they stopped testing. Wow. Yes. Mm. And I think that one of the aspects as well, um, without uh, being too cynical, I, I think it's very genuine, is that this carceral logic, it's, it's not merely that they want to uphold this false ethics of well, if you do something bad, you should be in jail. But if they actually did what public health officials would say, which is we need to, you know, release nonviolent offenders, we these are hot spots. This is, you know, not only inhuman on every level, but really dangerous. It would set a precedent of recognizing, well, maybe these people shouldn't be in jail in the first place because they're not actually a quote unquote, even by liberal terms, threat to society. So this represented a moment, I think, that could have fundamentally challenged the entire basis of why do we have so many people in jails? And then taking a step further, do we even need Right, jails? And, and, and I think part of that is also really challenging the idea of violent, nonviolent, because we, 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 we you know, that, that mm. label gets used to create sympathy for some incarcerated people and to, uh, to maintain a kind mm. of punitive, framework for thinking about others. And really it's, you know, we don't, we rarely think about the conditions, the everyday conditions of state structural systemic violence under which many millions of people in the U.S. live, you know, from like food deserts to 
uh, inadequate housing to environmental toxicity to punitive policing to failing schools to like all to you know um be low poverty wages right so these are these are those are all that's the violence of the state targeting populations and then the 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 individuals or the the subjects in those communities are the ones who are then labeled violent offenders and removed from those communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean that that's a really good point, and thank you for calling me out on that. Especially like absolutely, and I think that this is you know that is a huge danger about again saying you know deserving and non-deserving, right? Um, which. Again, I mean, it, it it is, you know, going back to this notion of the lessons too. I mean, even before all this happened, I think that you were starting to see so much of this carceral logic in the everyday lives of so many people at all levels. I mean, there were, I mean, really a lot of discussions about the use of electronic surveillance for employees, right? Mm-hmm. So knowing that people are tracking them 24 seven and make sure they're working hard enough. And it really struck me that in this sense, like there are so many lessons about, you know, this is a group of people and, you know, from communities and then a particular population that has been on the kind of, if you want to use these terms, front line of this type of, you know, authoritarian society and the ways in which they've sought to negotiate this, challenge it, and cope and live with it really has is so rich in lessons and I, I like that term lessons you know for all of us as this i think increasingly you know goes beyond uh the institutions prisons to being a logic that all of us to various levels are yeah, impacted absolutely by. um so i have time for one more question i'm i'm, I'm... yeah uh, so um I, I wanted to ask one more question, um, and, and I apologize because, I, I, like I said, I, I feel like I, I could be here all day. Uh, um, is just, I think it's it's the last question I had about marking the public imagination. Is that all right? Um, I think as I, I mentioned this previously, but about you know part of this kind of broader uh, aspect of how your recent book uh, kind of exemplifies the ways that we can challenge, you know, previous forms of destructive black visibility and really transform the public imagination in ways that allows for a more emancipatory forms of social and intimate relations. Wow, what a great question. Can you ask me that again? <laughs> I was like, I, yeah, I can ask you that again. <laughs> no, it, because uh, I, I think, you know, we talked about fraud imaginaries and, and we spoke about um, Anyways, but you've in a previous work, I mean, you, you talk about public imaginations and you've talked about in your previous work very brilliantly also about visualizations and these types of things. And I'm wondering about what are ways in which this bookmarking time represents a, a type of ways in which we can really decolonize and dismantle and abolish, you know, what I would say are very destructive forms of black visibility and really transform this kind of public imagination into something that okay, got it. Thank you. Um, so I think so. One of my one of my approaches to that question was like, you know, when I told people I was writing about prisons and visual culture, they everyone assumed that I was going to be writing about like um, films about prison or Orange Is the New Black or you know just all these popular TV and filmic representations of prisons and prison life. And I mm. actively and deliberately worked mm. to not. Um, reproduce images, visual images that people that are familiar to a broader public. The and, and in part um, taking up a scholar Michelle Brown's concept of penal spectatorship. That in some ways the the familiarity we have with prisons through TV and film has allowed us to accept the type of penal spectatorship that people are there are there because they belong there. So I really focused on. Um, forms of, of, you know, visual culture, art making, objects that were more intimate on scale, that was often created for one person or a community or, you know, like, or even for the artist, him or herself, um, 
as a, as another kind of lens for thinking through um, how we envision how the relationship between um, seeing, you know, culture and imprisonment and, and kind of the recognition of humans, human beings, right? Of, of, of the kind of worthiness um, of every life. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, such an inspiring point, uh, I think, to stop. I mean, absolutely. And uh, Nicole, I really want to thank you for joining the show. I mean, as always, uh, I, th- I find your work incredible. And, and I really hope everyone takes the time uh, to read Marking Time because uh, I can't say it again how brilliant it is. So thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, another world is not only possible, but happening right now.